Clearly, there's a huge opportunity, I think trillions of dollars of commerce that are going to be shifting from traditional to, to online in the years ahead. I can't think of many opportunities of this scale. I personally can't. Five trillion is the last number I saw on B2C and about 20 trillion on B2B. The opportunity is just absurd. <laughs> Welcome to the GeekWire podcast. It's GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in tech, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And this week on geekwire.com, you can read stories including the cybersecurity implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a new list of Seattle startups in crypto, blockchain, and Web3, a new glimpse of Microsoft's massive campus overhaul, and a big new fundraising by e-commerce technology startup Fabric, a $140 million Series C round led by SoftBank. With the deal, Fabric became the Seattle region's newest unicorn startup, a privately held company valued at more than $1 billion, or in Fabric's case, about $1.5 billion. Our guest on this week's show is Fabric CEO Fassel Massoud, a former executive with companies including Amazon, Alphabet, Groupon, Staples, and eBay. He joined me after the announcement on Thursday morning. Fassel Massoud, the CEO of Fabric, thanks very much for talking with me. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. I should say congratulations to the Seattle area's newest unicorn. You just had a big funding announcement this morning, and I want to talk about that a little bit later on. I know it's been a really busy day for you, so I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Happy to do it. Before we jump into that, you have a very interesting outlook on retail, not only because of your experience at companies like Staples and Amazon, but also, of course, because of what Fabric does, providing core infrastructure to a variety of different brands to offer their own e-commerce services and really power what they do online. What have you seen in retail coming out of the pandemic? What are the biggest things you're seeing right now? How are you seeing things play out for shoppers and for retailers? I think the trends were always there. What I saw was more of an acceleration of that trend, just purely because of the fact that consumers needed to access goods and services. And with the pandemic, one of those channels basically shut off the physical channel. So you can imagine that trickled itself into more upstream where what do retailers B2B and brands do to be able to provide that access to the, the consumer. So we saw that big blip. You saw the acceleration e-commerce revenue. In some categories, you've seen that come back down to normal levels in grocery specifically because low margin business, you can't really ship everything grocery to your house. But where the biggest, most seismic impact we have seen has been B2B. B2B commerce is accelerating at a different pace now because the notion that you could only have outside Salesforce and inside Salesforce and account management to run your B2B business is shifting. And it's shifting because the economics are also favorable going online. But also, I would argue that beyond the pandemic, millennials like engaging with iPhones and don't like having, you know, face-to-face -face conversations for those those transactions. So there's a natural inertia happening from the ground up, which is bring stuff online, make it self-service, but also the traditional mode of B2B selling is going to be evolving. Uh, not saying it's going to go away. There's always going to be, I can tell you, enterprise sales and enterprise SaaS. Uh, we like the in-person conversations, 
but we can short circuit a lot of those down to the last conversation versus every single one being in person. So for that, you need tools, the capability of being able to provide commerce access to products and services and pricing and delivery and all of that. That was all done manually. So you see that really changing and changing permanently coming out of the pandemic. Oh, I mean, it's like once you go to an Apple store, you don't want to enter a Sears store, right? That's kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> you, get, you get spoiled. You use an iPhone, you don't want to use other kinds of phones. And there will be, of course, opportunities for folks to try to do things the old way, but I just don't see that as a natural forward-looking view. I want to ask you about physical retail. There was an interesting story in the New York Times this week about the growth of physical retail in 2021, and it was a bit of a surprise. I just had my own experience. I was recommended this book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And I can go into why somebody recommended that for me, but I think maybe that would be off topic and and perhaps take away my focus. But I looked it up on Amazon this week. And I realized it was going to be three to five days before I got that book. And I thought to myself, what, what can I do? How can I get it sooner? And I called up the retailer, Secret Garden Books. I'll give them a plug here in Ballard in Seattle. They had a copy waiting for me. I walked and I had it within less than an hour on my lunch break yesterday. It's my long way of asking, do you see in this omni-channel world, physical retail having more of a presence going forward? You know, I've never felt that it's a bit of a binary choice. It's either online only or offline only. That That's never been sort of my take on this. That said, supply chain issues recently have not helped consumers stay only online. Like myself, you, you want to have access to goods immediately and that curbside pickup and that omni-channel capability definitely enables you to show up at the store. I would even argue for returns with the companies popping up where you can bring the returns straight to the store, even for other stores. Orchestrating those returns through physical stores is happening. I don't have the data in front of me to state one way or another, but my view on this is it's going to be a hybrid of online and offline, really depending on the category. Electronics, small goods, commoditized products, do you really need to go in? For higher-end apparel, et cetera, you do need to go in (laughs) and uh, sometimes try stuff out. So that's not going to completely be eliminated. And mathematically, groceries just doesn't, you know, we've seen this. It just doesn't work. You can't have $25 groceries delivered to your house. You'll never make any money. So I think the numbers you're seeing might be a little bit skewing towards grocery. I don't have the data, but I would assume that could be a factor. And then DTC brands popping up so many stores and some of the categories that are jumping up, if you notice, designer brands are really doing well right now. There were some articles about LVMH and others that, are, that have really excelled during the pandemic and post. That could be driving it, but I, I, I see that uh, online's not going away. Neither is offline. DTC, direct-to-consumer, that plays directly into what you do at Fabric. For people who are not familiar with it, can you explain and give us an overview of, of what Fabric does? So Fabric is a, we say headless, we say modular, but think about us as a set of Lego blocks that as a DTC retailer, as your business expands and you are about to hop off of a Shopify or a BigCommerce or one of those providers where they are providing you that single threaded DTC view to your customers, sell your products online, we'll ship them to you. And that's it. Uh, Perhaps they'll add subscriptions to that. But as your business matures, 
and we have a lot of businesses that have those types of complexities where you're doing wholesale, distribution, B2B, perhaps you have a franchise model, perhaps you have international customers, cross-border, or want to sell on marketplaces. Those types of channels and verticals and types of different business opportunities just cannot be managed through a standard templated single e-commerce in a box experience like Shopify. So Fabric comes in when you want to have more flexibility on the front end. So you have a brand, you want to show it off, you want to customize it and do what you have to do. We provide you that flexibility because we separate the front end from the back end, which means effectively you're no longer stuck with a monolithic platform that only tells you, here's your template. This is all you can do. So all the websites that are like yours look exactly like yours. You want differentiation. So we provide differentiation, flexibility, and infinite scale. As you go from 50 million to 500 million, we run on AWS. Like There's no constraints to how we can expand your business. But also because we're API first, we can integrate with whoever you like as a partner along the way. And that's the single biggest reason we see that mid-market and enterprise customers are attracted to what Fabric is doing. And you have some big names, brands that people would recognize using your services, using these Lego blocks to create the experiences for both businesses and consumers. Yes, we do. Um, both on the um, DTC side, a brand such as GNC, Bodybuilding.com, uh, Honest Company, and on the larger retail side as well, Restoration Hardware, for instance, or even uh, specific niche brands like BarkBox, et cetera, are with us. But what we really like saying to our customers clearly is that we're agnostic of what business they do. You could be a QSR like McDonald's, which is a customer, or you could be a big box retailer. We are completely agnostic to what you do. Where there's commerce, there's fabric. I have to look up acronyms sometimes. I did not know QSR, quick service restaurant. I just Googled that literally. <laughs> you did it really <laughs> well because I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next, the parallels between Fabric and Amazon Web Services. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. You described the company when we were chatting in advance of your news this week as the AWS for commerce. And I realize that metaphor may get a little mixed because you used to work at Amazon and, and you actually helped to build businesses, including Amazon Basics. But it's really this notion of providing the infrastructure, the underlying infrastructure in chunks, not as a, a whole product or a whole package. People can pick and choose which pieces of fabric software or APIs they use to implement this vision for their own commerce experience. Absolutely. We don't like locking customers into products that they don't want. I have suffered through this personally when I was at Staples with IBM WebSphere. We probably used 15% of the product's functionality. Because when you build a product that tries to serve everyone, you serve basically no one. And that for us is just not a solution that as a SaaS buyer at Staples and a SaaS consumer, 
it, it was a big constraint for us to use these types of platforms. So we believe the modularity of being able to pick and choose your APIs is at the core of the kernel of what we do. So um, it is fundamental to what we do. And also with AWS as our infrastructure makes it enormously easier as well. You worked at Amazon for many years, as I mentioned, and it's fascinating looking at your C-suite. It's not everybody, but there's quite a few former Amazon executives on your team. Can you talk to me about the team that you're building, the way that that Amazon heritage influences what you do and and how you're approaching that whole part of the business in terms of the leadership team you're assembling? It's not been that I have gone and only sought Amazonians. It's just uh, many Amazonians think alike. It's a lot frictionless uh, when it comes to the conversations of what our vision is and how we're very input-driven and not output-driven and sort of the basic fundamentals of how Amazon thinks about the business and the long run versus the short run. We have been very fortunate in this, um, being able to recruit folks like Stacey Saul, who's our COO coming in, and uh, Omar Sadiq, who's our CTO. And then, of course, you know, Craig, who runs all of our corporate marketing. Craig Berman. Yes, Craig Berman. And also other folks on the team who have embraced the fact that you can't build a business overnight. This is a long journey. And we're going to optimize for the long term. So that helps for sure. But I have a unique background in the fact that I've, I've spent time at Alphabet and Google X along with Amazon and eBay. And I had the opportunity to be selective. And when we set our values and our first principles, to find a very good hybrid of what works for us. And uh, we were very early in that, but our first principles drive us to execution and a bias for the customer. And for that reason, getting these Amazonians on board and leaders like the folks we've hired uh, has been absolutely um, a massive accelerant for us. Val Rupp, also our chief people officer, comes from uh, Amazon, then she went on to go to Microsoft later and HPE. But again, somebody running our people organization coming from that. I think she has folks uh, also on her team that are Amazonians. You mentioned also Stacy Saul, who was just recently named as Fabric's first chief operating officer. And then you mentioned that you worked at Alphabet. You worked on Project Wing. Yeah. She worked on Amazon's primary drone delivery business, which got me to thinking, are you headed toward some sort of drone delivery infrastructure? You're shaking your head no before I even finish the question. Not even <laughs> close. Uh, I will say, though, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but we we flew hundreds of thousands of missions. They flew zero. But uh, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Um, No, uh, it's a bit of a coincidence, but I'm a huge fan of Stacey and her ability to execute, and she's an incredible leader. So it was uh, surprising to see that we ended up in the same lanes. But yeah, uh, no no plans of anything to do with drones. Pure coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, at this stage, yes. I imagine you two will have some very interesting coffee conversations over all those things oh, we, when you're able to work oh, in the same have. space. Oh, we have, oh. Uh, especially <laughs> around the form factors of their drones, but yes. Has it been easier than you expected over the past year to recruit folks because they were leaving Amazon anyway? And do you expect that to change with some of the compensation changes that Amazon made internally just recently? You know, I, I don't attribute any of that to folks coming to Fabric. And here's why. When we, so I was a bar user at Amazon and we have kind of the similar process internally. When you're joining Fabric, we look for a couple of things. One is core competencies, of course, an aligned vision of where we're going, a culture fit, of course. But what we also look for is very high conviction in what we're doing. And if there's very high conviction, 
the financial stuff doesn't really get in the way as much. If you're purely coming to Fabric so you can make more than what you made at Amazon, it's probably not a great decision because we're looking for folks who have high conviction with us for the long run. So yeah, it's for us, it's great that you know there's, there's changes over there that help us recruit better. But I don't think that's the driver. The driver is they see what we're doing, they see what we're building. And if they have high level of interest and conviction in what we're doing, they will come. And if you look at our math, 50 people to 300 people, like that's not trivial to do in a year. And uh, ask other SaaS companies if they've been able to recruit. And the type of talent, the bar that we have, we're very proud of that. I'm very proud of our team. Fabric raised $140 million in a Series C funding round led by SoftBank. And you told me when we talked this week, you weren't even trying. This amazed me. Like, this is a massive undertaking for most companies to go out and raise this funding. Tell us the story of how you ended up at this valuation with this kind of funding when you didn't even really need it. I want to stay very humble when we say this because we didn't need the money because we had a lot of money already in the bank. Uh, and we weren't <laughs> looking for But I've always believed that if you have an opportunity to raise money and keep the company capitalized and stay capital efficient, you should raise money when you have money. You don't raise money when you don't have money. I see a lot of pundits on Twitter talk about how to raise money, and I always refrain from commenting. But our approach on this has been very simple. If you have the right fundamental inputs in the business, you're building the right product, you're hiring the right team, you're putting runs on the board with the momentum with big brands and customers are satisfied, you will ultimately end up getting the outputs you're seeking, which is getting capitalized, getting the right investors to come in. After the seed round back in August 2020, we have not actually done a fundraise process. All of our rounds have come in through investors leaning in and having an interest in what Fabric is doing. And then the conversations progressing from there and expanding to other investors. So uh, we're very fortunate, I would say, uh, and we're very humbled by it. But we had the opportunity to be picky in who we picked and along the way and choose the right partners who fit with our culture, our values, and sort of our path forward. And we felt that the Robert is an incredible investor and uh, him and Lydia, who were absolutely instrumental in the fundraise process, we felt were a perfect fit for where Fabric is headed, especially at this growth stage. But then we were also accompanied with other investors, such as Forerunner and Glenn Capital and uh, Redpoint, others who came in as well. Robert Kaplan, who you mentioned, will join the Fabric board. He's with the SoftBank Vision Fund. And then his colleague, Lydia Jett, also was clearly very deeply involved in the process Absolutely. of this fundraising. She's done incredible investments in the past, and we have a deep respect for her. And uh, that's why we felt that this was uh, the timing was good. I mean, uh, <laughs> we couldn't have prescribed a timing like this, uh, but... Uh, we believe that it puts us in a really good position to really now focus on the business versus anything else. Tell me more about that timing. I think I know what you're alluding to. Are, are you thinking of events on the international stage and how those might impact financial markets and, and funding? I think the impact on private markets because of what happened in the public markets recently was already coming through, uh, especially as you see the crossovers and other larger growth funds that both invest in public and private markets, then they have choices now. So ultimately, private markets are going to see an impact. I can't predict when, but it's going to happen. And then the international stage of what's happening in the world right now, I for sure don't want to be raising money later. We're fortunate to have done what we did. And frankly, it's a pretty big thing that we had it all wrapped up and also had such a seamless process 
that um, our investors were very helpful in the process throughout the way. Uh, so our timing was actually very good. Getting back a little bit to Amazon, one thing that I've had a hard time wrapping my head around is exactly whether Fabric allows companies to not use Amazon, to compete with Amazon or the marketplace. Obviously, I'm struggling to sort of figure out where Fabric fits in and its technology related to somebody who would just go straight to Amazon's third-party marketplace on their own. Can you explain that to me? Amazon's third-party marketplace is for a brand that's trying to get its image out the door and not have to spend all the time on driving traffic. Because think about a business that's starting out to bring traffic to your website is a non-trivial task. It's an expensive endeavor, especially with all, everything that's happening with cookies right now. And you've seen all the news. It's not trivial. So I actually am a big fan of the third-party marketplace because it's a net accelerant for any brand. They're getting velocity. They're getting revenue, they're getting customers, and you know they're getting the name out there. So there are brands and merchants and, and companies that sell exclusively on marketplaces, and there are brands that sell exclusively DTC, and there are brands that sell on both. GNC, for instance, sells on both. They sell direct, they sell at stores, and they sell on the marketplace. We are completely agnostic to that. We believe that we insist on what does our customer want, and we facilitate that. Fabric, if you break it up into pieces. Think about commerce in general. Commerce is broken up into many, many domains. But what really matters for any kind of online commerce is item, price, inventory, order, returns, payments, cart, checkout. All of those are APIs. We enable all of that infrastructure to let you run your business at scale. Now, if that means you're going to show up on, I don't know, Amazon's marketplace or Walmart's, we don't really have an opinion on that. We will facilitate that. And that decision lies with the brand. That decision is not a fabric decision. This is where it gets to the phrase, which I think the industry needs to change, by the way. I don't like this phrase, <laughs> headless, but that's the whole point of it. It separates the, the backend infrastructure from the front end and it gives them flexibility. Seriously, somebody in the industry at some trade group needs to come up with an alternative to this. I'm sorry, that's just me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece on this early on when I joined Fabric, the headless horseman. I, I do agree. It's not a it's not a great term. It's catchy though, so people have caught on to it and all of a sudden, but plus the head, the head could be anything you want, etc. We see ourselves much more as a modular platform that's very composable. And when I say composable, think about all these APIs and you want to be able to pick and choose the best in class SaaS for those particular domains, whether it's search, tax, payments, whatever it is, right? Subscriptions. You can pick and choose and compose your platform the way you want. And we believe that's where the market needs to be. But on the back end, you need to be able to orchestrate all of that across the platform so the data is all synchronized and harmonized across the board so you can see exactly what you're doing with your businesses. That's where Fabric is powerful and very differentiated. You have companies out there that will just sell you APIs. Well, who's going to do the work? <laughs> that's, a, that's a science project. And it takes very long. And in the end, it could be very disappointing. We believe providing the option to say, do you want the full platform end-to-end -end, or do you only want pieces of the platform? We give you that flexibility and we don't enforce one approach or the other. We let the customer decide based on what they want. And there are many times when we have actually opted to introduce our partners in there when our product is not the optimal solution for, say, a product item catalog 
or a um, order management system or whatever it is that is more appropriate. But in most cases, Fabric solves vast majority of the use cases. If you're building a marketplace, we can build that marketplace for you. If you want to orchestrate your orders across many, many, many channels and your inventory is dynamic, our OMS can handle that. But if you want somebody else, we're okay with that too. Ultimately, our approach is that we will bend to the needs of the customer versus the industry, which has been the exact opposite, where the customers are bending to Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Like, why is that happening? So it's, at, you know, at Amazon, we used to say this term, um, I don't know who started it, but we don't want the customer doing all the work. Uh, you know, we want to do the work on their behalf, not the other way around. And I think that if you think about retail right now, across the, at least the US or beyond, vast majority of operators are still using very primitive draconian tools to run their business day to day. Amazon isn't. <laughs> You mentioned Marketplace. I, I'd like to mention that we have a product, Fabric Marketplace, that enables marketplaces for brands. So you have a lot of traffic. You want to be able to sell more of things that you don't produce. Fabric actually helps you orchestrate all of that and takes the friction out of the way without you owning any inventory. That is a big focus area for us going into uh, 2022. So Fabric Marketplace would be a, a focus product that we are going to invest in. You explained when we spoke earlier that one of the reasons the company was able to raise money without really trying at such a high valuation was what you called the absurd market opportunity that's in front of you, which I ended up using as a quote in the story, of course. Why is the market opportunity so absurd and what's that like as an entrepreneur? Here's a simple example for anyone to understand. If you look at fintech, right? Payments. It's solving a small sliver of commerce payment. Commerce is item, inventory, all the hierarchies of that item, your cart, your checkout, your returns, your tax, all these other domains. And in FinTech, how many players do we have? Hundreds, if not thousands. MarTech, let's take a look at that. Another smaller domain, pretty big, but still a part of the commerce domain. When you look at commerce, you could probably count on your fingertips how many companies there are that are actually providing a full stack end-to-end -end commerce experience. So why I say absurd is it is absurd that you don't see that type of group of companies in there because it is a difficult problem to solve. And to solve the commerce problem, you need expertise. And to help someone run their business, you should have some experience running a business. And having run over a dozen businesses in my personal career, and then having people like Stacy and others on our team who have had experience doing the same is a massive differentiator for us versus everybody else. Because everybody else is either coming from the IT or agency side. They've never really run a business at scale. And I know you're being careful probably not to use the phrase day one, but clearly there's a huge opportunity. I think the company is saying that there's trillions of dollars, essentially, of commerce that are going to be shifting from traditional to, to online in the years ahead? I can't think of many opportunities of this scale. I personally can't. Supply chain, maybe one, perhaps, could be one. There's a lot of startups coming up in that. But $5 trillion is the last number I saw on B2C and about $20 trillion on B2B. And B2B acceleration is going to be quite significant. Because remember, they're still sitting on on-prem legacy infrastructure. 
they haven't even moved to the cloud, a lot of them. Uh, hence, you see AWS multiples because there's still so much upside. We're just at the tailwind of that, where as you start moving over, well, you need commerce APIs, you need to run your business. And that's where Fabric, the opportunity is just uh, absurd. <laughs> Why isn't Amazon doing this, doing what you're doing? Great question, Todd. <laughs> the answer coming up next. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Why isn't Amazon doing this? I have my opinions, but uh, I think Web Store 1.0 and 2.0, uh, I know the teams that were building it. When you're at Amazon, you're taking a lot of at-bats and you're doing a lot of different businesses and a lot of them end up being extremely successful. Not everything is going to be a home run every single time. And Web Store was one of those where when Web Store was built, the premise that everything had to be an ASIN, which was an Amazon-specific SKU, and had to go through sort of the Amazon protocols of selling products was a constraint on the customer and it wasn't flexible. And Shopify kind of provided a bit more flexibility. You can still list all your items on Amazon, but it wasn't the other way around. So the capabilities and features provided by Web Store were just not where they needed to be. I've read in uh, various publications that they are trying to do get it back into commerce. I, I don't have much to comment on that. I will just tell you this, that it's not easy when you're at that scale to go build a brand new business from scratch when everybody in the retail industry is scared of you. It's going to be hard. Amazon payments would have been a lot bigger if it wasn't Amazon payments. <laughs> so they've got some headwinds just because of the branding and size. But it's also when you're a startup, you're much more flexible, nimble. You're able to move a lot faster. So we've had that benefit of doing that. Web Store, for people who have not followed this, was essentially Amazon's effort to give retailers the tools to do a multi-channel commerce strategy. Shopify obviously has defined that market to some extent. So what, they, what happened, Todd, was um, Shopify yeah. went on this really bad idea of trying to build a fulfillment network. <laughs> and right. uh, I've written about this as well. And whereas BigCommerce decided to utilize Amazon's third-party FBA to do their merchant fulfillment, which I, I think is actually a better strategy in this case, versus trying to build everything yourself, and especially with Amazon's 250 FCs, how on earth are you going to compete with that? Can you give a rundown essentially of how you'll spend this funding that you just raised from SoftBank and others? You know, our mission doesn't really change. We're staying the course on building out world-class product. And this funding really helps us introduce more internationalization into our product and geographic expansion. So both on hiring folks internationally so we can expand into those markets, but also building native uh, capability into our product so we can support international geos. Uh, that's one. Uh, and the second is uh, really building a lot of autonomy into our co-pilot apps, which is the operator using apps where instead of them using Excel and other tools. They're using our apps to build 
a rule engine where they, they don't have to do the tasks every day. And so our Copilot dashboards are really built to help the merchant marketer and inventory planner run their business day to day. We would like to add a lot of intelligence and uh, autonomy into that. So essentially, automation, this idea that they don't have to click every button themselves, the, the virtual agent essentially knows what to do to set things up. Yeah, you're adding SKUs, you're setting pricing, automating all of those workflows. We, we do not think that uh, the human should be taken out of the loop on those tasks. Unfortunately, besides Amazon or maybe Alibaba, um, everybody else is still extremely manual in what they do. When you look ahead two, three years, I won't make you look farther than that. What are your aspirations for Fabric and what's, what's it going to take to get you there? And, and what are the biggest challenges that you foresee the company needing to overcome to achieve its long-term vision? I think our overall plan doesn't really change much over the next couple of years because we have so much to build and so much to do. Our goal would be to really continue raising the bar for our customers' needs, like whatever they need, we're able to flex to that and provide a product that can serve them best. At the same time, one big thing that is part of our mission is to make these, uh, although uh, not full re-platforms, when you're transitioning from your current SaaS applications to a new one, make those moves seamless. So we are building tools internally to orchestrate all of that self-service. In addition to that, the key metrics we look at is, and although we're sort of a leader in this, is uh, the time from you deciding to move with Fabric to the time you're going live. We want to compress that as much as possible. So that's a big input driver for our business. Second is building autonomy into our tools on the developer side and also the user side. I think if we can do those things, there really is no ceiling to where we could go. And I don't want to artificially place a glass ceiling on there. I think there's a massive runway and we're very early innings right now. Fassel Masood, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Fassel Masood is CEO of Seattle-based e-commerce technology startup Fabric, which this week became the region's newest unicorn, the 18th by our count, in case you're keeping track at home. Thanks for listening. See the show notes for related links. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or go to geekwire.com slash podcast for more. Kurt Milton produces our show. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.